Welcome to the Men at Work podcast, episode number 11. I'm your host, Travis Streb. Today, we are talking to my good friend, Blake Seeler. Blake is a coach of embodiment, men's leadership, and relational intimacy. Uh, what's super cool about Blake and what makes him such a great coach is that he has lived through so much of the stuff that he coaches. He's had so many different situations in his life from addiction to relationship challenges, and he brings all this to his coaching. What I also love about this episode is Blake is unabashedly authentic in sharing his views. So all the things we talked about could have been super pedestrian topics, but he brought a lot more than that to the table. We talked about the idea of masculine and feminine energy in the workplace. Talked about how corporate culture is not really serving men uh, or women for that matter. We talked about toxic masculinity and what it actually looks like how feelings and emotion are a liability at work, and a big rift that exists between men and women today in general, and how we might want to heal that. Definitely stay tuned for the end of the conversation because Blake leaves all of us with a really excellent five-minute practice to help heal the rift between men and women. Okay, we're all set for episode number 11. Let's dive in. Polarity has come up a couple times on this podcast, and if it happens to work out, I may get you to explain it a little bit, because it's not, I wouldn't say it's, it's, I think people understand it once they hear it, but it sounds like, um, you know, self-development jargon at times, and so, yeah, I'm happy to talk, I'm happy to talk about polarity, I'm also happy to talk about you know, like the, the Me Too era stuff and the Gillette commercial and all that kind of stuff. Um, I am curious if, if we do go into those topics, like is your, do you know if your audience is almost entirely men, 50-50? It's half and half, almost right down the middle. So, um, yeah, which has been great. <laughs> it's been surprising, yeah. but it's... Yeah, the last person I asked about this commercial was an ad. He's an ad man. He re- runs a, a big uh, advertising company. So his response was, you know, more about whether a, you know a company that's selling razors, you know, should be um, are they are they like a pillar of virtue that we should be looking to, or should they stick to? selling razors. So his moves more his he kind of put it back as a question of like whether you like the ad or not. It's like there's something something else going on, which is they're potentially trying to capitalize on a movement in order to sell more razors. So yeah. I uh I wouldn't yeah. necessarily think of Gillette as a paragon of um morality or ethics or anything, but I would look at them as a paragon of marketing. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and and advertising too, for that matter. So, I mean, we can talk about it on the show. I, I have, I have. Yeah, I, a, there's a humorous collection of mixed feelings, if you like. That's good. I mean, my my friend actually from North Van lives around the corner here. He was their like he was their model. Um, oh really? He's like one of the dudes with you know the ripped six pack and you know chiseled jawline and um, yeah, kind of the picture of 
what a you know the best a man can get <laughs> so the best, the best a woman can get yeah yeah he also appeared on commercials for wiser's um canadian whiskey and you know he's the guy in the leather jacket at the bar who's you know drinking all the whiskey and never appears to get drunk or sloppy so um yeah there's lots there um so all right you're all you're good to go Totally. The, the last question I had yeah. about, you know, asking about your audience and, you know, Me Too era stuff is like, have you ever, do you ever really want to go into, God, the scary, the scary zone and, you know, talking about assault culture and talking about um, upstanding and talking about, you know, men making a difference to protect women and women making a difference to help men grow like, do you want to get into that stuff? Um, yes. Like, I'm. this is, for me, the, like, the more real the conversation is, the better. Like, I don't have, I'm not looking to have a sanitary, necessarily, conversation because there isn't one to be had. I'll, I will tell you, a lot of my guests are reluctant to share their views on it. Like, I, I kind of poke. Um, that's okay. One of them was super, like, she was much more open because she's, that's just the way she is. She's a candid woman. She works in the corporate world and it's part of her brand. She's like, this is what it is. Like, this is exactly the thing that we're meant to be dealing with right now. And here's, so she, she was good, but um, yeah, I don't have, I'm not trying to kind of whitewash the conversation yeah. at all. I'm, I'm happy to go there and I'm, I'm okay with, speaking my mind, even though I know it will be controversial to some people. Um, you know, I might get a little bit selective with my words when we get to that point. Um, you know, if I'm thinking on my feet, that's a, that's definitely like, that's, that's the edge for me professionally is being able to think on my feet about such a loaded topic. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm in the practice of saying yes to it whenever the, the opportunity presents itself. So I will do Well, and, and let me, let me reassure you, if you say it in a way that you don't like, we'd, we don't need to include it. Like, I'm not here to, I'm not here to New York times anybody. Like I'm, if you, I want to give people a platform. I want to give you, I want to help you get clarity on your own messaging um, and then elevate the conversation so that we're not just talking at the surface. Maybe it's not even elevate. Actually, it's deep in the conversation. Elevating is different. Okay. I'd love to hear um, what you mean by that distinction. I think that's an interesting <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> for me. Well, I'll, I mean, I'll share it. Like elevating the conversation is to me about taking it actually into back into the ethereal and talking about it at a high level so that we're being strategic and all these great words. Deepening the conversation is what's below the surface because sometimes the devil's in the details and we can't always just have a surface conversation. And if we elevate it too much, then it be, then it goes back into the realm of like, intellectually, I understand it, but right. what's the, like, what's really going on? Good. Well, I'm glad you said that. Cause I have, you know, as far as, as far as what's wrong with, <laughs> what's wrong with the world in terms of what's wrong in the gender war, um, I would love to both elevate and deepen the conversation. Um, Cause I think that, I think that what's really going on underneath in some of these circumstances is, is where the was where the compassion needs to be directed and, and where it's being missed. Yeah. So 
how like how did you get in to this work i mean you've got zentropy coaching mm-hmm. you coach men on embodied leadership you help people out who are in essence as you say stuck you do relationship counseling as well so what's the story of blake zeeler to take you um into this work well thank you for asking um I mean, there was, it was a many fold process, but the first thing that, that wants to come out is um, I arrived here from a place of pain. I arrived here because I hurt people. I arrived here because I felt like shit about myself. Um, I, you know, was going along in my twenties and early thirties, following a lot of the shoulds of, you know, finding a beautiful and smart wife and, um, you know, working for a, a lucrative company and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, one by one, I came to realize that each thing was not actually for me. Like I hadn't really chosen it, chosen it. And, and therefore my heart wasn't really in it. And I was just feeling inadequate and like a, a failure pretty much day after day after day. And, you know, my self-esteem, as you might imagine, was in the, is in the toilet. Um, you know, the lowest, <clears throat> the lowest point maybe being in 2011 perhaps. Um, but from that point, I, took it upon myself to really start exploring what is personal growth? How do I, how do I get a deeper understanding of how I work and why I feel the way I do and why the world occurs to me the way it does? I mean, you name it. I just wanted to know me better. And that curiosity led to a lifelong commitment. And that lifelong commitment led me to some really gifted teachers and led me to some places of very deep peace and acceptance of myself and of, and of others of the world of, you know, even people who do terrible things. And once I really got, you know, with each, with each step forward, with each breakthrough, my worldview changed. It just became, it just became better and more peaceful and more free. You know, I just didn't feel like I had all this uh, drag from the past holding me back from moving forward. And I came to believe that, you know, my journey was not unique that everybody can use the tools that I've used or, and probably a whole bunch that I haven't even discovered yet um, to change the way the world occurs to them and change the way they occur in the world. And I think for a lot of people deep down, that's what they really want is to feel like their place is cherished and valued and important. That's uh, that's a, that's a, that's a story there. I mean, you, you said, you know, you caused a lot of pain, caused a lot of hurt, but part of it was in essence, you hurting yourself. I mean, you talked about feeling painted into a corner and you've written about this too. And you're an author on the good men project. You talked about climbing the mountain of should. Um, so what was, what was that like for you as a man to have that realization that hang on a second, I'm living according to somebody else's standards. I'm mad at myself. I'm mad at the world. Well, um, momentary, uh, obligatory shout out to the author of the mountain of should, which is a beautiful poem that was recently made into an animated short. Uh, the fellow's name is Brady Gill. If you Google the mountain of should, you can watch it in its entirety. And I recommend to your, all your listeners that you do so. Um, I, I borrowed that concept in my essay, um, for, that was, that you read it was, that was called what's holding back the modern man. And the essay and, and your question both point at the same concept, which is that most most men, and I think 
to a degree, most people, but I'm, I'll speak from a man's perspective, um, are not okay with who they are right now, today, in the present moment, because they have a very clear concept of who they should be. They have a, a, a model in their mind of what a successful man looks like, what a strong man looks like, what a provider looks like, you know, what a good lover looks like. And every time they see evidence that they are not that, they end up berating themselves because for the most part, that's what men have been taught to do is either beat themselves up or beat someone else up. And a lot of the gentle men that I see in the world who wouldn't hurt another person are very good at hurting themselves. Um, I consider myself kind of a recovering self-abuser in that regard. Um, but it's, it can be quite easy if you've been taught a model of shame when you were growing up or you were taught that, you know, bad things happen to you because you're a bad boy, then chances are really good that, you know, you will really take it out on your own ass every time you imagine you've made a mistake or someone's told you you've made a mistake. And that can be very hard for a lot of men. I think they're just fundamentally trying to be someone other than who they are. And uh, the dissonance that occurs from, from that, you know, the, the trying to live these parallel lives um, can be really deafening. And I think it, it leads to all kinds of stuff like addiction and procrastination and distraction of all forms, numbing out. So for me, you know, climbing that mountain of should, you asked what was it like realizing that, you know, hey, this isn't really me. I didn't really choose this. It was <clears throat> at first, at first, a little bit depressing. Like when I was thinking about the concept of like, oh, have I just made a bunch of wrong decisions? It was depressing. But that the depressing part of it only really lasted for, you know, a couple of hours because I was, you know, I was in a space where I was really feeling into the truth of this, feeling into the truth of this. And, and the depression occurred as like, or a sadness, whatever it occurred as like a, a little wall that I had to push through of acceptance. And, you know, it's like once I really, once I was able to pan out far enough and look down on my situation, be like, oh, okay, it actually, it makes perfect sense that I ended up where I did based on all the things that, I, that have happened in my life. You know, like my trail could have not ended up anywhere else. So where I am is perfect. And all the choices that I made up till now are completely understandable and commensurate with who I was until this moment. And then you have that, that until this moment threshold and you realize that you can literally choose to be someone else going forward. And then, then Travis, the feeling was enormous relief and joy. And, and that's, that's what I call a breakthrough where you come to accept some truth that actually aligns better with the truth of your soul, the truth of your spirit aligns better than the truth that you've been believing, which was probably installed at some point in the past. And you can call that truth a lie. Um, I think in, in essence, that's one of the things that a lot of people are doing is they're living inside of lies. Yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's certainly, uh, that's true for me. You know, I had a different, but similarly themed evolution around that as well. And um, definitely felt that, that mountain of should in my life. And then, and also the grab, you know, the acceptance piece was about, I spent so long fighting to, you know, not be my father, but also learning to accept that, Hey, there's some real gifts in the things he brought me. There's not, it's, it's not an all good, all bad component. I think 
um, have I got to full, full acceptance? No, no. Um, but I think that's the work. And, you know, you, well, you and I share a mutual teacher in, in, in John Wineland. Now, one of the quotes, uh, it's, it's a bit of a rough quote here, but he says, you know, the first step to becoming a conscious man is just becoming conscious of how fucked up we are. <laughs> I think is, is profound in essence is, yeah. yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Becoming conscious of the dysfunction of the world and, and also becoming conscious of the dysfunction of the dysfunctions in which we grew up. And, you know, I, I resonate so heavily with what you said about your father. My old man passed away in 2010 before I really got to know him in a way that I know a close friend now. And there are indeed, there are so many things about my life that he wasn't alive to see as realities. Um, so there's, you know, and, and he died and, you know, went out kind of in a burst of flames. There's a, a whole bunch of flaws that I very much do not want to f- recapitulate. And then there's a bunch of qualities that I very much do. But, you know, that, that identity piece of like, I want so badly to be different than my old man, but I also want to be him. And, but I, I like have to be him because I'm the son and that's what the son does. I have to inherit the kingdom and ah, you know, fuck <laughs> <me for giving laughs> you know. yeah, the immense pressure of, of, uh, of being a son. Yes, <laughs> that's true. But to, to John's point, you know, waking up to just how sick the world is and just how much everyone is hurting is definitely the first step. Um, and I think that's, I think that's, that, that step is one is blocking a lot of otherwise good men from taking responsibility for making change in the world. So you, I mean, you spent time and you, now you're, you're working full time as a, as a coach, um, as a mentor and, but you spent time, you know, doing the corporate thing. And so I'm curious, like, what was it that pushed you out of that world? Hmm. Well, there was a lot of things, but I think the biggest one is that I didn't feel, I didn't feel aligned with my ethics in the work that I was doing. So I was in healthcare and I was uh, working for a medical device company and I was making good money. Um, and I was making more money kind of each year. And the last like three years I was doing it, it went up by at least five figures a year. So it was, you know, growing um, handsomely. But along the way, especially those last three or four years, even as I watched my earnings grow, I felt my, my satisfaction, but also like the, just the calmness, the tranquility of my heart was getting worse, you know? And at first I was, at first I focused on the surface, right? Oh, they're not paying me enough or, Oh, my territory isn't big enough. Or, Oh, if only this customer would come to their senses and give me that million dollar contract and everything would be fine. Um, but I, I came to realize a deeper truth, which is that healthcare in this country is so corrupt that the only reason I have a good living is from corruption. That basically I'm, I'm making a, a very privileged, you know, white upper middle class sort of, sort of life on the backs of consumers who are hurting and getting gouged. And I just couldn't be a part of it. I just couldn't be a part of it. And, and I, I, re- I recognized that like I was, you know, the Obama campaign came through the Affordable Care Act, all that. 
I, I've been a big believer in, in single payer healthcare for a long time. And I recognize the writing on the wall that if I stay in this industry, I can't actually advocate for single payer because it'll turn my job into a effectively a blue collar role. And there's no, you know, it would hurt my bottom line tremendously. And I looked at this equation and I went, this is the root of conservatism right here. This is exactly the moment in someone's life where they go, you know what? No, I'm going to vote selfishly because I have to care about me more than I care about everybody else. And that's not me, Travis. That's not me. It's not. I mean, you, you clearly have a deep sense of purpose and that, you know, I know that, um, you know, beyond just you and I talking in this interview, but, you know, can you talk a little bit more about what that corporate environment in general is doing to people? Because you've got some, you got a really unique viewpoint on this. And I, I think it's one that um, people should hear, especially, you know, what the corporate world is doing to men. I mean, it, it did some, it did a number on you. That's for sure. Well, thank you for asking. Um, <clears throat> I mean, this is, I'll do the, I'll, I'll do the elevate the conversation thing first and then I'll, and then let's deepen it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I like that. To elevate the dialogue first, you know, we, we colloquially refer to the rat race and the grind. And what we mean is, you know, capitalism. What we mean is this, the need for everyone to work in order to have a decent living. Um, and we look at that from in a macro sense and we think, oh, it's a, it's a meritocracy. It's a healthy free market of competition and, you know, let the best man get the most earnings and all of that. And we want to believe that that's true. But I think most of us know that it isn't like we just have a felt sense that we're, we're being held down and the, the playing field isn't fair. And, you know, we're all kind of being left to fight for the scraps. Even if you have a pretty good paying job, I don't think most people feel that they're um, getting the, the fulfillment or recognition that they deserve. So on a, in, a, in a very large view, I think that capitalism is starting to reach its limits. Um, we don't really need to work 40 hours a week anymore. You know, we have the automation to make that not the case, but we keep doing it because we're in this kind of indentured servitude model where we're being forced to basically. It's either that or choose homelessness. So that's that's the macro problem as I see it is that so many people keep buying into this system that actually doesn't work for most people. And to deepen the conversation, I think the reason it doesn't work for most people is because our needs are not being met in a very basic way. People need sunshine. They need time to make love to their partners. They need vacation. They need the freedom to cook their own meals. You know, they need the freedom to be able to get up when their body tells them it's time to get up and go to sleep when their body says it's time to go sleep and eat when they need to and exercise when they need to. And none of these things, except if for, with a few exceptions, like if you work at Google and you've got a, a, a gym in your, in your office and an amazing culinary spread every day that you could choose from that's all you know, farm to table and organic and blah, blah, blah. But you know, 99 and a half percent of us don't have those luxuries. And so what most of us are doing instead is we're pushing off all of those other needs in favor of the one need of making enough money. And, and maybe coupled with making enough money is the should of being a, I'm putting air quotes around this, productive member of society, right? Because we all have a particular standard of like, well, if I'm not doing X, Y, and Z, then I'm not a productive member of society, and then I should be ashamed of myself. And for most people, that means working 40 hours a week or more 
going the extra mile, getting up earlier, sacrificing the gym, sacrificing a good meal. And it's, you know, we do it, we do it day in and day out, all of us, because we're either trying to get ahead or trying to keep up or trying to not fall behind, you know, and that maybe as can be three different felt senses in each individual's body. But the point is, is that we're really, really, really pushing ourselves and the body is suffering. The spirit is suffering individually. Each of us is to some extent or another, I think really feeling empty and wanton. And as this applies to men, if I could pivot a little bit, you know, through the work of, of our teacher, John Wineland and, and his mentor, David Data, you know, the, the message that I've come to believe is that for the masculine in all of us, not just men, but in all of us, but as it applies to men in particular, the masculine's, the masculine's main priority in life is purpose. Like that will always kind of be the number one thing. What is it? What is this person's mission? And for someone who has a dominant mask, whose, whose essence is dominated by the masculine, and that's not all, that's not all men, but people who have a, a masculine do dominated essence, purpose is actually going to be their number one priority. For a feminine dominated creature, the number one priority is love. And each of us is going to have some balance of purpose and love, purpose and love, purpose and love. So we could, I'm going to pin that because we could have a conversation about achieving that balance. But to your last question, I think what's, what's bringing a lot of men to a, that feeling of emptiness and worthlessness is that they're not on purpose. They're not living on purpose at all. They're trying to make money. They're trying to provide, they're trying to be a good man and do, you know, check all the boxes, but they're not actually doing anything that calls to them or inspires their heart or that they feel like down in their gut, down in their genitals. Like, yeah, this is what I'm meant to do. And I, I think that that lack of purpose leaves a lot of men feeling deeply, deeply empty. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've been in, in that situation for sure in my work, um, you know, and, and there's a certain, you know, depolarization that happens if you work, you know, if you will, where mm -hmm. you kind of tend, you, you ignore that part, or at least I did. You say, well, purpose is not that important because I'm making money and I'm providing for my family and what's wrong with that. Um, but I mean, you've seen the consequences of this. I mean, you do a lot of men's work, you do a lot of relational work. So where else do you see this showing up? So that when, you know, that obviously the, there's a, there's something there, work is potentially causing this depolarization or, or causing men to just not be on purpose. Well, what's happening out there in the world when that happens? Yeah. Great question. Um, you know, and this is, I think, where it starts to, where it starts to bleed into our personal lives a little bit. Um, the world that you and I grew up in, Travis, and arguably that our fathers grew up in too, but especially our generation and and those who are those who are younger than us. Um, there, <laughs> the depolarization has been kind of across the board. So, like young girls and young women are, are told you don't need a man. You can provide for yourself. You can make money. You can be talented. You can be recognized. You can have your own reputation and you don't have to define yourself relative to another human being. Fantastic. Like that is an incredibly liberating truth, but that truth has also pushed many young, young women to 
develop at the expense of their own feminine essence to develop their masculinity such that they can keep a calendar and have integrity and show up to appointments on time and be productive. Um, you know, not that integrity is exclusive to masculinity, of course, but you know, those are, those are the realms where a masculine talent shows up. So, you know, a lot of women were raised in this culture to be really good men. And conversely, a lot of men in this culture were raised primarily by their mothers and by female school teachers, especially when we were boys, um, you know, except maybe on sports teams, we didn't really have a whole lot of masculine mentorship at all. We were, we <clears throat> were indoctrinated into a world where we were taught to be in your feelings, express your feelings, be kind, be sensitive, consider others, consider others, consider others. Fantastic messaging. It's really important messaging that all men, and it's training that all men should go through, I think. What's missing is robust training on the other side. And so the, uh, on the other, the other side being how to be strong in your masculine as well. So we end up living in a culture where we have a bunch of uh, failures to launch, you know, men who can't figure out how to self-start in the world. And we have a lot of um, very directed women that are getting flack for being ball busters or being too hard. Um, and it's unfortunate for both genders because we've lost, we've lost touch with our essence. And I think that's the big depolarization that is happening. So a lot of the work that I do with couples now and is, is oriented around helping each party. I mean, I work mostly with men um, and not with women, but helping both parties to get more in touch with their essential selves such that they can evoke each other's essential goodness and essential beauty and essential power and essential buck for lack of a better term. Um, and, and that's a lot of the work that we're doing um, in our, in our men's groups now is, is practicing what it takes to develop your essential self and evoke it from your, your partner. Well, so my hair, so I, I, I mean, I see this and I've seen it in myself. Like certainly, you know, my wife and I have been through and, you know, may go through again at time, you know, cycles of, of where things become more neutral that, you know, that polarity is just gone. Do you think there's room for polarity in the world of, of work as it were in terms of, um, you know, in the corporate world? I do. Um, you know, we, we speak of polarity as, as something that, um, you know, we want to cultivate or strengthen or whatever. But, you know, let's also name that polarity is a dynamic thing. Like at different moments, polarity is going to be higher than others. So like when you speak of when you speak of you and your wife having many moments where there's very little polarity, that's actually OK. You know, you don't have to have polarity all the time. When it really comes down to it, you have more in common as people than you do differences as being different genders and, you know, working together. I know you have, um, have a kid as well, more than one. I forget. Two, one, yeah. Two. two girls. Yeah. Two girls. Yeah. So you've got, you've got kids as well. There's a lot of work to be done. You guys have a division of labor. I'm sure that, um, is intricate and very, uh, interdependent. And so to make that work, sometimes you have to, you have to both be able to take initiative. You have to both be able to ask for help. You have to both be able to follow sometimes and lead sometimes. And that's a depolarized way of being, but it's also a beautiful dance where the polarization is not at zero so much as it is 
gently swaying from one party to the other, like, you know, like a reed in the breeze, you know, so in, in, and it could happen from minute to minute, right? Like you could say like, hey, I really need you to blah, 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 blah. She'd be like, okay, I got that. And then she'll come back five minutes later and say, hey, I really need you to do this other thing. You're like, okay, I can go do that. Well, in, in those two, in that five minutes, it went from you holding the masculine to her holding the masculine with no problem. Um, where it, I think people get really unhappy with polarization is when it gets locked into some, you know, polar extreme where, you know, you have either like a dominant and a submissive uh, without one, with one of those parties not consenting to be in that position. You know, or you have you have a something that's completely depolarized where neither party can make a decision, um, and there's just kind of a general malaise of I don't know what do you want to do. Uh, but you asked, <laughs> you asked about how this this applies to the workplace, and so everything that I just said about how polarity can show up in relationship is is true in in all relationships to some extent, not just between you know husbands and wives or lovers. Um, you know, in the workplace, oftentimes, you know, a manager is somebody who is expected to hold the masculine more than his or her underlings. And doing so might be good. They might be good at it. Um, and they might be terrible at it. And, you know, and that, that, maybe is a, that maybe is a manager who won't last all that long. But if you have a boss, regardless of what their gender is, you can start to feel into, okay, when are they trying to step into their masculine? When are they more in their feminine? What happens if I show some of my masculine as their underling, like be a self-starter, be a self-leader, be like, hey, I can see that you need help on this. I got it. Don't worry about it. You know, as an underling, if you did that, you're basically saying, hey, I can hold this part of the masculine so you don't have to. And chances are your boss, whether they're male or female, is going to be like, oh, Oh, thank you. You know, and in that moment, you just watch them go into that, that feminine, oh, that, that whoosh of, of be going back into feeling, noticing that they're in a state of relief and then expressing. And that, you know, so in, there's a, that, that little micro dance of, 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 you know, who's holding what. Um, and, you know, and similarly, like um, between, between people who are at similar, you know, pay grades, you know, you and your coworkers, um, again, regardless of gender, you can get a read of people, you know, like, oh, here's somebody who is, is trying to hold the masculine all the time or has a hard time doing it. Or here's somebody who come, shows up to work. You know, if you have, if you have someone in your office who's a bit dramatic and they're always talking about, um, you know, like what was going on for them, what's going on for them emotionally and how hard everything is for them, you might recognize like, oh, here's somebody who ex is, comes to work in their feminine quite a bit and they're obviously going through some stuff. There's nothing wrong with being, with going through stuff, but choosing to show up at work when you're in that place and expressing from that place is going to have it's going to have an impact. It's going to have an impact on the people around you. And if you become aware of what, how you're showing up and what the impact is, then you can maybe develop some choice around that, such that you know you'll you might recognize like, oh, work isn't actually the best place for me to dump my feelings, or work isn't the best place for me to be bossy. You know, you might, you might get a lot of flack for, for trying to lead too much or trying to control everything. Um, you know, and that might be a situation where you have to relax the masculine a little bit so that you can feel what the moment calls for. You can feel what the company needs. You can feel what your coworkers need from you. You know, it might, you might have all kinds of great ideas, but if you have a really uh, acerbic touch, you know, no one's going to actually want to follow you.
Yeah. And, well, I'm, you know, I'm glad to hear you say that that, that, that dynamic can exist in the workplace. I mean, it's something that, that I am uh, passionate about and trying to make a push for because I believe that our workplaces, uh, they're becoming very neutralized in a lot of cases. So I think that we've, we're swinging from the idea where they were dominantly masculine and now it's, now we're, you know, we're taking, I think maybe the wrong message that mas- all masculinity is bad and it should just drift. And we should in essence be these, you know, these neutral beings who interact in a neutral space to get work done in a neutral way. And it's a, it's from an experience perspective and a culture perspective, it's, it's boring and terrible. And there's no, there's no creativity in it too. I mean, I, I've interviewed um, the founder of a large creative firm a couple of weeks ago. And he's like, we need, like, we need creativity and we need new ideas. And it's like, that doesn't come necessarily from a masculine energy. That's going to come from a feminine energy. But he's like, me and the three founders are all men. So we have to lean into feminine energy. Like it's, it's fine. I'm glad they know that. I'm glad they know that. Um, you know, let's, <clears throat> I would add to what I was saying a minute ago that um, addresses what you just said. The, the workplace, uh, if we can draw a really big circle around what that means, the, the, or at least the, the American or you know, Western world workplace, um, is in itself one giant pit of masculine, right? It's, it's like the arena in ancient, or the Colosseum in ancient Rome where we throw a whole bunch of masculine energies into a, into a pit and, you know, one, you know, perhaps you have two corporations and they're duking it out, but in essence, it's everybody needs to be productive. Everybody needs to be organized. Everybody needs to be on time. Everybody needs to be a leader of themselves or a leader of others or both. It's, it's one big masculine shark tank. And, um, and, and that doesn't work for everybody. You know, we are talking about why the corporate world doesn't work for a lot of people. That's one reason. But what you're describing is what I would call just a total neutering. Like, it's like, well, if too much masculine isn't working, then let's just have no polarity at all. And, you know, as you said, it's, it's bland as oatmeal. Um, so I think that how do we, you know, maybe the, the question becomes, and I'm not, a, I'm not a corporate coach. I don't really work with like CEOs on how to change corporate culture or anything like that. But uh, I have some ideas about, I think, uh, what could help. Um, you know, which is that you, you have to, I, gosh, you could do it in a month in a bunch of different ways, but one of them would be like changing the way that like performance reviews are done. Right. Like we, a lot of it is about performance metrics. Right. But what if, if creativity is a company asset that you're trying to cultivate, isn't that also a performance metric? And, but we don't really know how to put a number on creativity because it defies it defies uh, such a rubric. It doesn't want to be measured because it's inherently amorphous and always changing. So, you know, if we're going to be evaluating our employees or praising them or recognizing them, then we have to put systems in place where they're being recognized for their feminine talents or for their feminine energy. And creativity is one of those. Um, So is teamwork, you know, collaboration, like bringing people together. And, you know, you've seen, you've seen the kind of, you know, like a brainstorming session, for example, where everybody's kind of sitting in a room and you're throwing a whole bunch of ideas up on your idea board. That's the best thing I've seen in terms of like a, a moment of, of feminine uh, energetic outburst. Um, 
you know, but those are in some ways, those are kind of like, well, we got to set a meeting and have a, have a room so that we can actually do that, you know, which is fine. You're creating a container so that the feminine can flow. And, and that's, that's natural. That's part of polarity work. But I think for most companies, they want to like demand creativity in a, in a meeting at 11 o'clock. You, know, you, know, like, <laughs> you want to produce creativity on a schedule or with a deadline or you know you have to produce this many creatives today you know and it just it doesn't work so we have to we have to pan out and look at all the ways in which we are stifling feminine energy in the workplace in everyone men and women alike yeah i mean well whether you are uh, you know an expert in corporate culture um and coaching or not you know, that's a really good insight to bring to the conversation. And it's part of, it's part, it's, you know, it's a microcosm of this conversation in essence. You're saying, hey, I don't come from this world necessarily. Well, that's where some really darn good ideas come from. Um, so, I, I mean, and, and what you're saying, you know, is certainly in line with some of the newer thinking around designing, you know, cultures that actually work for people. I mean, Frederick Laloux's book, um, reinventing organizations is really all about this model of that's broken and mm-hmm. and there's and there's also there also and there there still are so many workplaces that are it, like the structure is is masculine of course because it's you know profit and goal driven and and um, you know there's that is the container how it operates but there's also within it there is this idea and it, it's not necessarily, it's kind of masculinity, but in, in the, the research I'm pointing to is from a woman called Jennifer Berdahl. She talks about the workplace as a masculinity contest yeah. where in essence work becomes like your analogy of the Coliseum where it's take no prisoners. Uh, the person that works the longest hours is the, is the champion regardless of you know, what their actual output is. Um, you know, take credit for other people's ideas when at all costs. And those kinds of cultures, the research, interestingly enough, shows that actually nobody wants to work in them, but everyone else thinks that everyone else wants it and they're afraid to speak up. So it creates this strange cognitive dissonance where you're like, well, I'm, I think Blake's like, I think Blake likes this, so I better not speak up because I'll be outed as the only one who hates this kind of environment. But when you, when you're working with men in, I don't know if you call it toxic masculinity, but how does, how do you help men understand where masculinity is, is um, let's say feeding the right kind of energy and where it's really draining um, for other people around them? Gosh, that's a great question, Travis. Um. You know, I think the, the answer for me would, would be to, to feel, to feel it, you know, like if, if, uh, well, for starters, if you are living so far into your masculine in your life that you can't feel anymore, um, or you have no way of relating to your feelings, I would describe that as a, as at least a form of toxic masculinity. That is where you, Inside, you are a tyrant. Your masculine is a tyrant that has a dictator that has no room for any uh, any of the equivocations of, of the feminine. Uh, so that's but that's really on on one extreme. I, I think that like 
the answer is to to look at the impact. It's like if you are if you are applying yourself in all the ways that you know to do, and we could describe those strategies that you're using as masculine strategies or masculine tactics, then you look at the effect it's having. Is it inspiring people around you? Is it helping them to relax and do their work better? Are people thanking you for your leadership? Um, do, do, you know, do you get the sense that like everything runs smoother when you're applying your, your talents? Or, you know, and, 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 you know, or, or not. Um, and if, if you're trying the same thing again and again, and it's not getting you anywhere, or it's just creating enemies for you, or it's creating a feeling of unrest and unhealth inside, then I would argue that um, you're applying masculinity in a way that's not helping you. Um, and, and in the same, a, a similar pairing of statements could be said about femininity as well. Um, but if, you know, if you're applying it and then you pay attention, you know, like you do your thing and then you pay attention to the impact you're having, you feel the room around you, you feel your impact. And you're, if your impact is one that is opening the world, opening people around you, opening creativity, then you're, you're practicing a healthy masculine and keep it, keep it up, you know, or, or deepen that practice True, Like that might be like, okay, this is working. You know, if I look, if I stand really still and I look this person in the eyes and I hear what they have to say without pushing back against them, and then I, and then, sorry about that. And then I validate what they're saying. Um, that may happen one more time. Another notification coming through. We might want to. <laughs> well, we can cut, we can cut there and just go back to the, you know, yeah. the essence of it. But so, yeah. So if you're, if you're applying, if you're applying your masculine energy, and it's opening the world, it's opening people around you, it's opening creativity, it's creating space for more love and more joy to flow, then that's absolutely the right application of, of masculine energy and keep it up. Um, and that could be a practice that you learn to deepen as well. Like this is working. If I stay here and really hold the conversation with this guy, hold eye contact and listen to what they have to say and validate it, then it creates a a decrease in tension and an opening of, of positivity, all that's working, all that's good stuff. Um, you know, if you're driving yourself into the ground and you're sacrificing exercise and you're sacrificing your diet and you're sacrificing quality time with your partner or time with your kids, because you just have to keep getting things done. Then I would say you're, you're locked into a productivity loop that isn't actually getting you anywhere. You're just putting, productivity ahead of everything else for productivity's sake um, because you feel like you should, you know, this goes, goes back to the mountain of should. Um, so that would be a, a misapplication or perhaps an overapplication of, of masculine energy to. Yeah. That's a, that's a good distinction to make. You know, I think there's, there's been lots of discussion about what toxic masculinity looks like on the outside but you're talking about what it looks like and feels like for the person who's potentially doing it or not, or not doing it. I think, and the, the other, the other part of it is that, you know, you talk about a productivity loop and doing, 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 sacrificing. And part of that though, in my view is we celebrate that. We celebrate the culture of busy and getting things done. We celebrate productivity loops and, People who are like, well, you know, I read nine books on my treadmill this morning. And then, you know, before it was even five o'clock in the morning. And, um, and it's, we especially celebrate that in, in the corporate world. 
uh, or and and on, and for entrepreneurs too, it's like the celebrate the hustle, 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 which I think is great at times. But as you're saying, any any side of that pull overused is going to create some problems. So, I I'm curious though. There's something that you talked about a minute ago. You talked about the idea of like, well, you feel like you feel into the room and what the impact is you're having. Yeah. You know, for someone who's who's um, where you're at in your life and your development, that makes a lot of sense. That what I'm seeing, especially in in one-on-one clients and especially in men, is the lack of connection to feeling or dismissing it because there's no room for feeling it in in the world of work especially in, the, in a corporate setting um what's your view on that uh, i feel a little bit of like sadness come up in my in my chest when you say these things man um uh, the, the sadness comes from <clears throat> just again, kind of this idea that we always have to do more and we always have to be more in order to, to really, I don't know, to be enough. Um, yeah, it's, it's feeling becomes a liability. And indeed this is the way in which young boys, I think are systematically abused. This is the way I think that sexism is systemic towards boys um, is that we are taught that feeling is bad. Feeling is a liability. Feeling will get you beat up. Feeling makes you look weak. And so a lot of young men are taught to divorce themselves from their feeling bodies entirely. And to me, that is, that is a, that's a tragedy. That's a sadness. That's a, that's a, a recognition of a great ill in the world. And I would label that as toxic masculinity. I would label that as, as the experience of, of being one of those boys who was taught this kind of bullshit, um, but also the, the culture in which that is the norm um, is, is every bit as much of toxic masculinity as is the behavior that often gets labeled as toxic masculine, toxic masculinity. Um, but we, we have kind of two different things going on here, right? We have behavioral stuff that gets branded as toxic masculinity and, and rightfully so it's harmful behavior but it, there's a disconnect between the behaviors and the identities of the, the people who have grown up in this world that has a toxic masculine message and a toxic masculine education um, and toxic masculine abuse towards masculine creatures. Um, and we, we don't talk about that so much is that these, these identities, these people that are growing up in this system have a toxicity within them that isn't their fault, it was installed. And then we want to turn them into criminals when they behave in a way that is toxic. Um, and it, it misses the, it misses the whole person. And, and that could be a good, a good pivot into more sensitive topics um, as well. But to, to answer your other question that like, how did you phrase it? That the, the workplace is, is uh, what's the last thing you said? Just it doesn't really allow for, you know, or, or at least a lot of men I talk to don't believe the workplace allows for feeling and emotion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, when a lot of people talk about feeling and emotion, or a lot of men especially, 
they, I think they imagine someone who's like being dramatic and crying and shouting and like just falling apart, right? And while that is a form of expressing emotion, it's by no means the only one. It's, it's actually like, that's like emotionality at an extreme. That's like at a nine or a 10. But your emotions at a one, a two, a three, a four, a five, you know, are very powerful indicators of how you are responding to the world around you. So even, you know, I have a teacher um, who says that the word no, like the, the desire to, in your body to just go, no, I don't like that. I don't want to do that. I don't think that's a good idea. Is, could be defined as the emotion of anger at a one. You know, if, if rage, like flipping out, raging out is a 10, then anger at a one is no, I don't accept that. And we, and you know, then it could kind of go up from there. Um, you know, sadness at a one might take the form of like, you know, you hear an idea like uh, you're in a board meeting and someone from the corporation says, oh, we've decided we're going to switch to this other product, uh, this other packaging because it's cheaper. But, um, you know, it's coming from a source that we can't really vet. And it might have toxic chemicals in it. Your, your heart might go like, oh, no, like that, oh, that doesn't feel good internally. And you don't have to turn into a crying mess in that moment. But you could speak from a place of like, I really don't believe that we should do that. I think that it's, it, it would violate my ethics if we did this and think of the children we might harm, you know, so on and so forth. You're speaking from a place of sadness and anger. Like that's what's going on inside you when you heard that information was like it evoked sadness and anger. Um, just like really like little amounts. So we hardly even, I, we hardly even label them as sadness and anger because they're not tearful or incredible Hulk, you know, but those emotions are there. Um, and if we get more sensitive, not less, if we get more sensitive at feeling, and indeed that is, that is a lot of the work of developing yourself as a developing your masculinity or for someone to develop their masculinity is to become more aware, more sensitive to the emotional content of your feminine. And the emotional content of your feminine is where intuition comes from. You know, we talk about women's intuition, but <laughs> frankly, the, all the intuition men have comes from their gut. It comes from their feminine as well. I would say that intuition belongs to the feminine. Um, but, uh, you know, if, you're, if your gut tells you or your heart tells you, like, no, I don't think we should do this. I think this is a bad decision. Then you are responding from feelings. And, and soliciting feedback from your employees is responding, that's leading from the feminine. That's be like, hey guys, this is a new policy we want to instill. How do you all feel about this? That's leading from the feminine. That's, you know, asking for, to get the impact of a potential decision such that you can like be with and hold and feel like, okay, if we do this, it's going to hurt a lot of people. Maybe it's not such a good idea. That's, that's feminine leadership. Um, and it can, it can be very, very powerful in a workplace because it leaves everybody feeling more heard, more understood, more considered, more cared for. All like motherly things that I think would make a lot of workplaces thrive. So that's it. I mean, that's a beautiful way to talk about the role of emotions at work, the need to cultivate that. I have a, I have a, a nitty gritty question for you. I know you're, you're a student of um, neuro-linguistic programming and your NLP. Yeah. Um, I can remember distinctly working with groups and you know, doing communications training 
and offering the advice of, well, you should avoid using the words I feel because it sounds wishy-washy. I, you know, I, I feel shame about having said that because I think it's total BS. I'm wondering um, now that I put my stake in the ground on it, what are your thoughts as a person that, you know, really deeply understands language? Hmm. I like the, I like the level of refinement on this question. Um, I think that be, before I specifically answer that question, I want to, I want to add a little bit of context. Please. Yeah. I think a lot of what is hard for men and hard for our world at large is that we don't trust feeling. We don't trust emotions. You know, all, most of us have been harmed by somebody who was too emotional or were afraid of being in a highly emotional state because we weren't really taught what to do with that or we were shamed for feeling that way at some point in the past. And so being emotional or having emotions often in both genders can be, just be seen again as a liability, as a hindrance. So I think first, of, first and foremost, we need to shift that attitude. You know, we need to leave more room for emotions to, to exist and to be, to be um, expressed in ways that are constructive. And there are certainly destructive ways to express them, but there are constructive ways. So perhaps if you could go back and reteach that seminar, you know, one thing that you could draw a distinction on is that there's constructive uses of emotions and there's destructive uses of emotions. And throwing a fit and yelling at your boss or, you know, putting a tack on your coworker's chair or something like that, you know, those are all destructive forms of, of using emotion. And some people might, you know, stand up on a chair and say something like, I feel like this place sucks and I don't want to be here anymore. And all of you are a bunch of losers and I fucking hate it. You know, like in that case, starting a sentence, starting a sentence with I feel is just going to create more issues than, than growth. Um, you know, but using the words I feel and then following it with a statement that is constructive, I think is, is needs to be welcomed. Um, you know, so in our example, we were using a minute ago about a board meeting where they're going to change plas uh, packaging towards something more toxic. You could say like, I feel afraid that if we do this, we're going to hurt people. Or I feel angry that we're putting profit ahead of protecting our, our customers, you know, and it might sound fucking weird at first, you know, a lot of workplaces are not going to be ready for that kind of languaging. Um, but if, if it has the truth of your convictions behind it, then I think that eventually it, it'll be hurt. You know, if you using the example I just did, like, I feel angry that we're choosing to put profit ahead of, ahead of our customer's safety. You know, most people are going to hear that and they'll be like, Oh yeah, you know what? We can't do that. And in which case you just expressed anger, like in a workplace, you just expressed anger. You said, I feel angry that uh, in, you know, at level one or two, you know, you didn't have to throw the chair to do it. You just said it. <laughs> <laughs> right. But if, if everybody hears that and, and goes, yeah, you know what? You're right. That makes me a little angry too. And even internally, they might just be like, yeah, that's fucked up. We can't do that. Then you will have succeeded in, in imparting some emotional wisdom. And that's, that's what that is in my view. That's emotional wisdom. You will have imparted some emotional wisdom into a workplace that was missing it before. If, however, you spoke up and said, you know what, I don't, I'm not okay with this. I feel angry that we're putting profits ahead of our customer safety and they all laugh at you. Then my friend, you need to find a new job. 
<laughs> because <laughs> because it's, it's speaking your truth, the truth of your convictions in the workplace is going to be met with derision. You won't ever really be happy there in the same way that I couldn't find happiness working in a corrupted corporate welfare or healthcare system. Um, but, you know, these are the inconvenient truths that will start to present themselves to a lot of people who choose to start feeling. You know, in many ways, like we, we all learn to, to not feel because the world is seriously dysfunctional in a whole host of ways. And if you turn your feelers onto all of it, it can be overwhelming. It can be totally overwhelming. It overwhelms me from time to time. You know, it's like I look at the news and part of some little voice inside me, you know, even as somebody who has devoted his life to changing the level of consciousness in the world and closing the, the, closing the, the, the rift of division that we have between our genders and everything, you just look at the mountain of the mountain of shoulds that everybody's living on and the mountain of shit that the world has built up for itself. And it's hard to know where to start. Um, because there isn't, there isn't any one thing that's going to change the, the course of history. Uh, it's conversations like this, Travis, you know, right now we are infecting each other's minds with ideas that are going to strengthen both of our convictions and empower both of us. And, and hopefully the, your listeners as well to go out in the world and be like, you know what, that's true. I'm going to listen to my feelings a little bit more. Now I'm going to express my sadness when I feel it at a one, because it could be really constructive. And every time you do that, you know, if you take the message from this conversation and you take it out into the world, you are changing the world one conversation at a time. Um, and it, it does, it works like ripples in a pond. You know, this is a way that I envision my purpose in the world is to, to be a stone that creates a big ripple such that other ripples will be made from it. Um, a chain reaction of healing is the way I look at it. Um, I don't really think that I have the power to heal anyone, but I do think that my ideas have had the power to heal me. And if other people try them on, they might find that they can discover the power that they have to heal themselves and then teach others to do the same and so forth. Yeah, that is, um, that's a beautiful description of, of your purpose. I mean, I know that's, that's a deeply held conviction for you. I mean, I feel it even across the wires of a um, Zoom video call. Um, Thanks, man. I, yeah, thank you. I, I wonder, can, can we dig in a little bit on this, this idea of healing the rift, the gender rift? Because I think that's the, the part of the unspoken of this conversation, to some degree, is there is a rift. We see it through the MeToo movement, which in essence is, you know, a flaring up of a rift that's been there for decades. Um, oh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Depending on on how far back you want to go, I mean, I've talked to guests on on this podcast in the past about even just even just the short time span since our parents' generation, how little has actually changed, and actually how much worse it's gotten in cases. Like, there's been surface level, mm-hmm. we'll call it improvement, but it, I don't know if that's even the right word to use. So what are, what are your, I mean, you talked about the rift and repairing it. What are you seeing out there? Um, and what do you, what do you think are some initial things that we've got to be talking about to make this shift happen or to heal this rift? Yeah, I'm a, I'm very happy to dive into this and I want to name that I have about eight minutes left 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I should have asked you that. I know it's yeah, we're twenty after. So yeah, cool. you give me, uh, give me, give me six, and we'll um, if you can do that, <laughs> we could talk about this big issue in six minutes. Totally. Well, and we could do a whole episode on this, Travis. We really could. Yeah. Um, I don't believe that things are getting worse. I believe that they're getting more public. Mm. I think that you know the stuff that is coming out, the anger, the hurt, the pain, the gender war, the gender divide is it's coming to a head now and we're talking about it now because everybody's talking about it now and it's becoming a much more vocal thing and hallelujah because it's been underground it's been tolerated it's been legitimized it's been there's another word that i'm forgetting um it's been protected like bad behavior has been protected by the system for for thousands of years you know gosh (laughs) I mean, even, even longer, it's all of human history to an extent, or at least since the advent of agriculture and the ownership model, in my opinion. Um, but what am I seeing out there, Travis? I'm seeing a tremendous shortage of love in the world. I think men and women alike are getting present to just how little love they feel and how much they actually want. I think that there is a deep, deep longing in all of us to love and be loved. And there's a deep sadness that goes along with it because we don't really know how. If we weren't actually given very good models of love, there are no schools of love. Um, you know, there are many good books on the subject, but they're not required reading. You know, usually the only people that end up there are people who are really lovelorn, and then you know they <laughs> take a box, takes a box, take a box of tissues, and go to the bookstore and to the self-help section and feel terrible about themselves as they pick up a Harville Hendricks book or something like that. It's yeah. Like what I'm, what I'm seeing out there is that everybody, everybody's hurting and in the process of getting really vocal about all the things that have been done that have been hurtful, we're actually, we are making the divide more painful. So in that regard, we are, we're more present to the pain. Let me put it that way. And I'm not saying that it's become, it, it was painful, all along we're becoming more present to the pain we're starting to look at the fact that we've hurt each other egregiously for thousands of years and and while we're not necessarily responsible for the sins of our fathers and brothers we can take responsibility for cleaning up the mess and frankly that's a choice that i'm proud to make you know i want to live in a world where men and women cherish and protect each other and don't judge each other for being human. And I think that in order to do that, we have to come together. And it's, you know, it's easy for a person of privilege to sit back and say like, oh yeah, we need unity. We need the genders to come together and, and you know, and then we can all just smile and get along. You know, and I'm not, that, I'm not that blithe about it or naive to think that that's all it's gonna take is one big kumbaya circle. Um, it's gonna take a lot of, compassion, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of acceptance, a lot of understanding. Um, and, and before we get to do those things, a lot of anger is going to have to come out. A lot of anger is coming out, you know, it's in, and I think it's a natural part of the process. So my, but, you know, to really, to really close the rift, you know, we have to, men have to be able to collectively hold hands, look at our female counterparts and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for everything that you've had to put up with. I'm sorry for all the ways we've hurt you. And then women, 
in my view, need to be able to hold hands and look at, right back at us and say, thank you. We understand why you're, that you're hurting too. Yeah. And that's where it has to start, you know, and then, and that's, that's very macro. And then, you know, to, to deepen the conversation, like between every two pair of people where someone got really hurt, whether it's, you know, something terrible like a sexual assault or something more common, like a bad breakup, you know, everybody gets hurt when that happens. You know, someone was harmed, but it, on some level it hurts everybody. And um, I think that in order to really like close the rift and, and elevate as a culture, we have to just create situations where we're not creating so much goddamn harm. Um, you know, and obviously that starts at the, at the obvious edge where you have people who are perpetrating harm. Like, yeah, we have to deal with perpetration, but I think that there's a, a vast majority of harm that occurs between men and women is, is happens as a, an unfortunate symptom of two people trying to get their needs met and doing a very human job of it and stepping on each other in the process and making each other wrong in the process and beating each other up in the process because they're making each other responsible for their happiness. I mean, that's, that's a lot of it is that like kind of the, 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 the relationship contract, the, the relationship contract, like the, the sort of standard monogamous model, as I see it is one of, I'll be responsible for your happiness. You be responsible for my happiness and we'll live happily ever after. And, and we won't do anything that makes each other unhappy. And then, and then we'll live happily ever after. And, you know, while that seems kind of like beautiful when you first meet somebody, you know, and your neurotransmitters are running amok and you can't, <laughs> you can't stop thinking about their body and like all of that other kind of obsessive new relationship limerence that we get. It's really, really easy to feel like, oh my God, this is the energy that's been missing my whole life. I feel so much more complete. I feel so much more me, you, you know, and we start looking at that person as our better half. Like they are the ingredient that makes our life meaningful. And it's, you know, it's a beautiful fairy tale, but it, it's fiction. It's fiction. It was never true. Um, I think that like one of our great problems is that we are expecting each other to meet our, our individual needs. We expect our partners to meet our needs. We expect our parents to meet our needs. We expect our, uh, you know, and, and our children expect us to meet their needs um, without even acknowledging that they're needs. And so there's, we're kind of, we're lobbing expectations at each other, like back and forth all the time. And when our expectations are met, aren't met, instead of just getting upset about it, we like, I think deep down energetically, we go to a place of I'm not loved. Right. If this person isn't meeting my needs or not meeting my expectations, that means they don't love me or I'm not lovable or both. And that right there, like that basic, you know, I call it like that, that monogamous transaction or that kind of standard relationship transaction. It's, it's dangerous, man. It really is. It's, it, it, it occurs to me as just a way of taking less responsibility for your own well-being and your own happiness and getting your needs met, not more. So, I mean, that I think is a really beautiful summation of, and of, of the rift and the, you know, the, the primary responsibility of men, but also a collective responsibility that we have to each other. It's interesting because we started off talking about your, your journey, the world of the corporate world, and we've come right back down to just really human to human, 
what's needed. And, I, you know, I'm grateful for your insights, for your wisdom and for your willingness to surface the, the depth of this conversation, um, at least in the time that we had. Obviously, we could go on for hours here. Um, and yeah, as you said, but definitely a future um, cast episode for Men at Work. So Blake, um, to close here, can you tell uh, my listeners where they can find out more about you and, and your work? Absolutely. Um, and at the end, I'd love to leave your listeners with a little practice that they can try with their loved ones. Um, it might actually help them start feeling a little bit better today. Um, so you can find me on Facebook. Blake is the first name. My last name is Zeeler, Z-E-A-L-E-A-R. Um, my website, which is easier to spell, is zentropycoaching.com. Zentropy is the words zen and entropy squished together. Um, to me, it means calm amidst the chaos. It's my version of a Shiva Shakti. Um, you can check that out. You can also check out openlove.teachable.com, which is the website for a class that I host. Uh, it's the pursuit of happiness and open relationships, one of my other areas of expertise. Um, and you can look for me on the Good Men Project. I have a couple of articles published there. Um, the one we referenced earlier, What's Holding Back the Modern Man, and one that's a little bit more fun, which is called How to Make Consent Sexy. Um, feel free to drop me a line on Facebook. Anybody who wants to be friends or have a conversation, I'm very open. Um, so let's hear, let's hear that practice then, Blake. And by the way, I'll link everything up in the show notes for all of you too. So <clears throat> words can really get in the way of feeling and loving. We use words to put our ideas into the head of those we love because it's the best tool we have or it's, we think it's the best tool we have. So tonight, here's something else you can try. Stand an arm's length from your partner. You don't have to touch each other. You could hold hands if you want to, but just stand there and look at them. Choose one eye and just look directly into that eye. And breathe together, synchronized if you can. Just gently watch the rise and fall of each other's chest and synchronize your breath. And just look at each other for five minutes even. And the longer you go, the deeper the practice, but you can even set a timer if you like, or do it for the duration of a, of a sweet song. And while you're looking at each other, try to just feel a few things. Try to feel how much the person across from you wants to be loved. Like just feel into their heart, how much do they just want to be loved? Like regardless of anything else, whether they deserve it or not, <laughs> just feel into how much they want to be loved. And secondly, feel into how hard they try, how hard they work, how hard they show up, all the things that they are doing and trying to do and even struggling to do for you, for your family, for themselves, for the world. You know, we're all out there striving valiantly day in and day out. And even if we don't have enough money or we don't have the right job or we don't have enough followers or whatever it is you're going for it's still tireless work and you still deserve to be viewed as a success for working so hard and the third thing that i would encourage people to feel into is each other's universal innocence you know, we all do things that hurt each other 
and we all do things that even short of like hurting each other, we all just do things that we don't like that, you know, other people do things that we don't like. Our partner does things that we don't like, and it becomes really easy to judge them. And judgment implies guilt. They're guilty of something, you know, maybe all they're guilty of is doing something that you don't like, but underneath that, underneath all the judgment, underneath everything you know about that person, everything underneath everything they've ever done is an innocent child who was born pure as day, tabula rasa, who has, who was pure and clean and innocent before the world got a hold of him or her. And the more we can stop to take the time to recognize each other's inner innocent children, I think the better off we'll all be. Brother, that is, uh, that's a beautiful practice for five minutes. Uh, I'll tell you what, my, um, my wife is home at this very moment. When I hang up, I'm going to go do that um, in honor of that practice. I would encourage all my listeners out there to give it a shot. Um, he's only asking for five minutes. It's like, you know, skip fast forward on Netflix, hit pause, whatever you got to do to find those five minutes. Um, and you don't need any fancy equipment to do it. So Blake, thank you for that. Thank you for your time, for your wisdom, for your teachings. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Men at Work podcast. All right, that is a wrap on episode number 11 of the Men at Work podcast. Like I said, Blake is not afraid to share his views. I love the perspective he brings and the expertise having actually lived through this stuff. If you liked what you heard today or any other episodes of the Men at Work podcast, please, please, please leave me a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever else you're listening to your cast. Hit like and share this with your friends. Stay tuned next week for episode number 12.